0: It is Palm Sunday today, which for some of you will mean things, for some of you will bring back memories of marching around a church in the suburbs with palm fronds, uh, and others less so, and that's okay too. Uh, We are in the season of Lent. We are kind of like very loose church calendar followers here. We uh, use it when it's helpful, and we often forget about it, but... Advent and Lent are the two that we kind of like lean quite heavily into because as a uh, terribly cynical community, we need Advent to remind us that anticipation and hope and joy are good things. Uh, And for some of those of us who like to avoid pain uh, and the idea of death, (laughs) Lent is really helpful for reminding us that loss is a part of life. And so we have been uh, walking together through this idea of um, the bodies reaction to loss and kind of looking through the lens of tears and laughter as uh, two responses to kind of loss and grief and some of this comes from this beautiful uh, tiny little snippet of an interview with Stephen Colbert who's one of my favorite comedians and a wonderful human and if you want more context for that I can I'll post it up on the Facebook page again this week but we're kind of drawing from that little interview but I won't make you endure it again. Uh, one of the things that we've looked over after over the last few weeks is the idea that for many of us who grew up in contexts where um, we kind of had a God who was the God is in control and the God is in charge of everything and everything has a meaning and everything happens for a reason, uh, that for those of us who that didn't work out for, hope was kind of used as a hammer to beat away our grief. Um that often when we experience loss, people were very quick to suppress that loss and bypass our body's feelings by telling us that, you know, it's all, in, it's all okay because God is in control and therefore, you know, don't be too sad about it because everything's going to work out just fine. And when things don't work out just fine, uh, you end up hating God and needing to kill that God. And that's okay. That's what happens sometimes. Um, so we kind of wanted to acknowledge that... Uh, Hope is a complicated space for lots of us, but it's also something that a lot of us are kind of desperate for. So we've given away that kind of hammer hope where we just expect the world to conform um, to some kind of goodness and nothing bad will ever touch us. Oh, this is such a beautiful rendition too. Thank you, boys. Oh, we're going to the hardcore version. Hooray! Thank you. That's really lovely. Oh, Sam will be gutted. He missed out on Twinkle Twinkle Little Star. Um, so, yeah, we also, um, as part of this framing, we talked about um, textures of hope and loss, um, That loss comes in many forms with many strands, and it's not just big loss that affects us, but all kinds of losses, and we need to acknowledge them because they appear in our bodies, whether we like it or not. Um, And hope also comes in many forms. For some of us, the pathway back to hope is letting go of the kind of like hammer hope where one day someone will make everything okay, so just suppress your grief, and actually understanding that sometimes hope means um, as little as one day I might feel okay again. And sometimes hope means one day, nothing will ever replace this loss, but one day in the wake of it, something good might be possible. And so, understanding that hope can be nuanced as much as loss can, can kind of release us into that. So, today being Palm Sunday, uh, if you aren't aware, Palm Sunday is a, um, well, Lent is this kind of like 40-day journey where we kind of track Jesus' journey to the cross. Uh, Palm Sunday is kind of the week before um, Good Friday, where Jesus was crucified in the story, and Resurrection Sunday, where Jesus um, rose again in the story. And so, we are on Palm Sunday, which is the day where there was this kind of like amazing crowd scene, if you like um, watching old Bible movies. Um, This is the one for all the extras to get a place. They get to uh, wave palm fronds and things around. So, What I'm going to do today is read three little vignettes, three tiny little portions of scripture um, and give a tiny bit of context to them and open up for your curiosity and noticing and wonder. Um, And we'll have a think about um, experiences of tears and laughter in these spaces. So the first one is set in Jerusalem. Um, It is, I should have got the clicker, but I didn't get the clicker. But I can get the clicker because it will make my life easier. Here we go, this is about as high-tech as this place gets. I'll also go and rescue my drink bottle. Um, so I come from the Pentecostal tradition, which means that we need to like um, yell at and abuse the sound man at least one point. Um, during the service, so we'll be saving that up for a little bit later, um, and then smile at the congregation when we come on stage. Good. Um, here we go. So, lots of people were in Jerusalem for uh, Passover, and uh, Jesus had, like, a little bit of a following there, and people were kind of hoping that this was going to be the time where uh, Rome was going to be overthrown and Jesus would be the kind of Messiah that would raise up an army uh, again, I can't give you too much history and context because we'll run out of time. But basically, uh, the Jews were living uh, under the oppression of a horrible empire called Rome, which bought the beautiful piece of Rome at the small price of slaughtering innocents. Um, and lots of the Jews there were losing their land because they were being overtaxed. Overtaxed, what a funny idea. Um, won't be familiar to any of you. Uh, and they were losing their sense of identity and they were fighting back. And so there was kind of all these militant uprisings around this time, Uh, at least 14 recorded um, possible messiahs uh, that were all taken out into the desert and crucified on crosses uh, by the Roman Empire. And (laughs) lots of people here are hanging around Jesus, hoping that he will be the next one to try and raise up an army and overthrow Rome and put... um, uh, Israel back at the top of the pile and lead a mighty military. And so they're all getting very, very excited. And so we'll read this little passage here. In fact, if someone, would anyone, does anyone have eyes good enough to read that and would like to? Thanks, Jeanette. John 12,
1: 12 to 19. The next day, the great crowd that had come for the festival heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. They took palm branches and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the king of Israel. Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, as it is written, Do not be afraid, daughter Zion. See, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt.
0: Thank you. Any Do any questions jump out from that passage or anything that you notice that you might not have seen before or anything curious in it? As a community, we kind of do this practice of noticing and wondering, which is um, rather than trying to explain and tell everyone exactly what the passage means, (laughs) trying to ask interesting questions to open up the story.
1: He didn't choose the most magnificent horse around. He chose a young colt. And I think some um, versions say that it was unbroken, wasn't
0: it? I'd have to look at those versions. That stretches beyond my expertise. But, yes, curious animal. My favourite. Oh, one second. I'm being torn in two. Thanks, Shane. Um, Just to note, in the the context of your earlier comment... um, Blessed is the king of Israel. They're all shouting it out and waving things. So they're they're putting him right up right up the front and naming him, which would have um, absolutely escalated the political tension. Yeah. yeah. So in context, there's Roman soldiers wandering around everywhere, keeping an eye out for violent revolutions, uprising. Um, but especially because there's these dudes called the Sicarii who would go around with, like, these curved swords hidden in their body and would just, like, walk up behind Roman soldiers and, like, cover your ears, children's, like, stab them, like, from behind up in here and then, like, slip back into the crowd again. So there there was constant vigilance against any kind of, like, political uprising happening. So, yeah, this is kind of a dangerous situation.
2: (laughs) As the son of God, I was just wondering, did he actually pinch someone's ass? Steal it, steal a donkey?
0: Um, Again, that comes under our safe church statement. We'd have to do a little bit more looking about. No, no. He sent us. in other versions, he sent his disciples to go and get it. um, And assuming that the person was okay with that. But, yeah. What's that? Yeah, with the add to the donkey theme, it's interesting how he finds it immediately after um, being claimed the king of Israel as a way of humility. You could see him walking in and everyone saying, king of Israel. And him just, like, looking for something to sort of humble himself and find a donkey, which is nice. Yeah, Yeah. and other, other Gospels, he sends his disciples to go and get it and says it's going to be waiting there. Like, this kind of, like, mystical knowledge about, like, if you go there, there'll be a donkey. And they went there, and there was a donkey. Like, yeah, kind of like a prop that just gets brought in. It's very street theater-esque.
1: It's very street theater-esque. Donkeys are funny. They're even funny now. And I think he's deliberately doing it. Or I've heard it interpreted as, like... This was like a street fanfare joke play deliberately.
0: Uh, all of John <laughs> is written in the things called chiasms, which is this like A, B, B, A, A, B, C, C, B, A. Like this, it's like this really careful form. There's some people who think the entire of the Gospel of John is a massive big chiasm with these things. You've got these like little segments that repeat each other and go... Topic A, B, repeat B, back to A. Topic A, B. And that the whole thing actually works as a Kaiser because it plays out like street theater. Exactly that. Um, there, if you read it again or for the first time or if you can find your Bible, um, <laughs> uh, have a look out because op- characters come on and go off again and come on and go off. And there's lots of little monologues between one and two people. There's all this kind of like step onto stage, step off stage. And so there's like theory that it's kind of designed that way to kind of play out like some kind of theater. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Which makes the donkey extra funny. Was there any other comments before? Yeah. Okay. So when you say like this plays out like Street Theater and it might be intentional, um, I mean, who knows what of this happened and what of this is the author's trying to tell their story to make a point about what happened. But um, this here is um, Caesar, son of God. Um, so the king and emperor and son of God and the divine one and all those things are all empire language. Um, the um, This here is a call is called a triumphal entry. And so you may have heard of the scene on Palm Sunday as the triumphal entry. The triumphal entry is borrowed off Roman empire practice, where the Caesar would go away and conquer some like what they call barbarians, and what we might call humans and indigenous people, uh, and then come back and lead this trail of people of all the warlords and all the chieftains and all the people that have been captured that seem important enough to bring back all bound up in chains led in this long trail um, to be executed or enslaved or sold into slavery um, all behind um, the Caesar who rode in on this magnificent war horse and the whole city would come out and um, greet the empire coming back from this conquering, from this military victory and they had the most beautiful I mean look at that horse like, they had the most beautiful, muscular, amazing horses. And donkeys are not. I love this one. Look at her. They're just, just like, and donkeys back then, like, donkeys as a comic animal is not like a new invention. Like, it's, it goes way, way back. And so when we're looking at laughter, and loss, Jesus knows that something's coming, knows that political unrest is at play, knows that it's a really tenuous situation with the Roman Empire, and, like, puts on this, like, parade. So people are trying to crown him and make him king, and he pulls out a, don- like pulls out a donkey, which I hope had buck teeth. And, like, it, like it's just the most magnificent, like, People keep asking like, oh, when are we gonna to get to laughter? Because we will get to laughter eventually. We've done a lot of tears, I know, um, in the last few weeks. But this here is like brilliant subversive theater, both to the Roman Empire of like, you're an ass. Um, and also to the people saying, we want a mighty military ruler. And Jesus turning it down and saying, I'm not bringing a war horse, I'm not coming in, I'm not giving you any excuse for violence here because you will be crushed. Later on in the story, Jesus weeps over Jerusalem and says, you've rejected the kingdom. You've rejected what I have bought. You have not heard. You have not heard. And Jesus is foreseeing what comes because in AD 76, Jerusalem revolts. And what happens? The empire beats the crap out of them, tears down the temple, tears down the wall, kills thousands of people. And that violence turns into gnashing of teeth and sorrow. And so there's both tears and laughter in this, of Jesus subverting that the way of God is smashing down people so that you can get on top um, and says, actually, the way of God is riding in on a donkey and looking ridiculous Um, and actually seeing those who suffer and seeing those on the underside. Okay, vignette number two. Goodbye, Caesar. Oh, there you go. There's a direct contrast. Yeah. Um, this is Coptic iconography, um, who are a kind of, uh, group of people in Egypt, a group of Christians. Um, and I love Coptic iconography the best because it's just really beautiful. Um, okay. This is a little two-passage one. And this is the Garden of Gethsemane. If you are familiar with the story, you'll know it is the bit where Jesus, depending on which gospel you read, says a long prayer and, um, and sweats blood because of the stress of what's going on. And so Jesus asks his disciples to stay with him because he knows what's coming um, and goes to spend time praying and his disciples fall asleep, of course. Uh, and Jesus is alone. And Jesus is kind of facing his options, before God, saying, I can see the cross coming, I know something bad's coming, this is what I have in front of me, and um, these are two bits of the prayer. So, do we have any people who like reading, reading things? Any readers? Thanks, Janelle. Well, there's no other hands, so I think you... Foolishly made eye contact, which is the number one rule. Do not make eye contact. So can you read both of them?
2: Uh, It was two days before the Passover and the festival of unleavened bread. The chief priests and the scribes were looking for a way to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. For they said, not during the festival, or there may be a riot among the people. They went to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. He took with him Peter and James and John and began to be distressed and agitated. And he said to them, I am deeply grieved, even to death. Remain here and keep awake. And going a little farther, he threw himself on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. He said, Abba, Father, for you all things are possible. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I want, but what you want.
0: Thank you. Any noticings or wonderings in this little passage? Anything just kind of hit home for you?
1: I think i just noticed that um i mean traditionally it's always sort of been uh, i've understood you know jesus foresight about what was going to happen to him as like being you know divine you know like being able to see the future knowledge that only a god could possibly have but i think reading now i think no in the in, in the context of what he'd been up to all week i think anyone would have seen it coming it would be like you know going into north korea and criticizing kim jong Il, you know publicly and then just sitting there going well this is not going to go well for me <laughs> um you know you, you you would be you know um you deeply grieved even to death you'd know very well that something was coming for you and it was not going to go well
0: yeah it's a beautiful observation yeah i've always
1: thought the bit, the last couple of lines where he has a conversation with God, just really intriguing. Like he's saying to God, like, if it's possible, I'd like not to do this, which is very human. And then the yeah, but but the last line I've also really liked to, Not what I want, but what you want. Like, but uh, yeah, it seems like a conversation with yourself if you're a Trinity, an odd thing to have.
0: Yeah, I I really like how not passive it is. Like of of Jesus not just going like, this is what's going to happen, bring it on. Like that kind of like stoic, again, like stoicism being this kind of like suppression of emotions and facing what comes kind of thing. I'm just going, actually, no, I really don't want, I don't want this. (laughs) Um, But there is something more important going on here. Any others? So the thing that, oh, you going?
2: Yeah. The only thing I, I'm just like um, surprised that this is the only moment when Jesus was like, oh, wow, this is a lot. Like if I was Jesus, I'm a pretty anxious person. Like I would be like freaking out the whole time. Like it just, um, it's nice that this is here. But at the same time, he is very stoic a lot of the time or very almost detached a lot of the time in the Bible, I feel like. I don't know
0: yeah you could you could absolutely get that reading right like and there's, there's always that temptation i guess in any kind of like narrative where the hero gets painted floating above the scene kind of thing and i think the gospel writers had a bit of that going on of like watch jesus kind of like sashay his way through you know you know i guess it was camp jesus sashay his way through all of the things that are going on and It doesn't trouble him. But this is, yeah, this crunch moment. The thing that stood out for me in this is just kind of with that previous context of, is like, I always thought about this, about Jesus having no options and going, God, take this away and do something because I I can't do anything about this. And the more I've thought about it, the more I think that's actually not what's happening here because Jesus can do something about this. Jesus can start a violent revolution. (laughs) There are enough people who want Rome out as would be proven 40 years later, there are enough people that want Rome out that if Jesus has started feeding that and sowing that, then he could have sparked that. That's absolutely within his capacity. And he chose not to. So it's not like he's stuck and powerless and going, this thing's coming and only God can save me. He actually has the capacity to turn into the thing that he's trying to resist. So the problem with Rome is the kind of colonizing violence of the empire that says we have to do a bit of bad, squash these barbarian savages who we don't really see as people, but we'll bring them aqueducts and bread. And so a bit of bad, if you see it that way, for so much peace and so much good and so much stability. And you see Jesus facing exactly the same empire decision here of going, bit of bloodshed, but I'll bring in the kingdom of God and Israel will be back on top. And that's the temptation. Um, In that Colbert interview, he quotes um, Hayden, who's um, uh, an African-American teacher and poet who was active um, from the 40s and the 70s in the States, and he wrote a poem called Words in the Morning Time, which I won't read the whole thing of because there's some elements of it that aren't great for this space, like, well, just not my place to (laughs) quote and say. Um, But one line of it, and one that Kobe quotes, is um, this little section here that says, "'We must not be frightened nor cajoled "'into accepting evil as deliverance from evil. "'We must go on struggling to be human.'" The monsters of abstraction police and threaten us. We must go on struggling to be human. And this is what Jesus is facing here. He has the temptation and a very real and very legitimized temptation to turn into the violence that he's trying to resist. And I think in all of this loss and bodily responses talk, that Vengeance and violence and retribution and all of these things are things that are deeply rooted in our evolutionary cycle, that parts of our brain are hardwired for those things and that we shouldn't pretend that we don't, when someone wrongs us, that we don't want to do the same thing back to them and have it justified. I think it's a really important thing to name and acknowledge when facing loss that sometimes the desire to strike out, the desire to strike back, the desire to um, turn into the thing that has hurt you is a really strong and legitimate desire. But in that, we lose some of our humanity in that process. Um, And it sometimes tears. And doing what Jesus is doing of naming the intensity of the grief and naming the temptation and naming your desire not to be experiencing this thing in your body, but saying, I'm not going to choose the other option. I'm going to follow through. Give me strength for that. Um, I wrote a little blessing for our community in this. May you not let your fear turn you into something monstrous. May you resist fighting evil with evil. May you know and declare the texture of your loss and resist the impulse to bury it. May you receive the grace you need to endure, and may your completely useless friends not fall asleep when you need them. Because I just think about this scene. If the disciples were awake and present, um, it could have just been a really different thing. Like, what if the disciples barged in at this point? And he said, I know you've gone off to pray alone, but we will stand with you. Like, it could have been such a different experience. Um, okay, last one, last little vignette. This is actually one of my favorite parts of the Gospels. Um I find it hard to have affection for a lot of the Bible, but this one here just always gets me, this little scene. Um, Does someone want to be our reader for this one?
2: Thanks, Karen. Meanwhile, standing near the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved, Standing beside her, he said to his mother, Woman, here is your son. Then he said to the disciple, Here is your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her into his own home.
0: you noticings or wonderings of this
1: one? It's
0: a really incidental thing, but uh it just struck me that um, Jesus' mum was Mary, and then his her sister says was Mary. So, um, and then Mary Magdalene. Yeah, um, having two sisters named Mary. Yeah, yeah. Which is, as I said, um, just an incident. What were they thinking? Mary, get over here. Yeah, efficient. So the disciple that Jesus loved is almost certainly John, (laughs) Um, who probably didn't write the book of John, but that's kind of what tradition holds has happened. It's probably a Johannine community that wrote John, but put John in there. Um, I just think of this cross scene of Jesus at his loneliest moment, and who's present? The soft, baby disciple, like John. John's kind of the one that was always, like, leaning on Jesus' chest in the Gospels. Like, they had that, like, heart connection when everyone else is trying to plot who sits at your right hand, who's going to take up the sword, when will you bring the kingdom, who's going to be powerful. John's, like, this gentle character and this kind of, like, affection like, Jesus kind of really mothers mother's John in the Gospels, which I just find is really beautiful. And then Jesus' mother, who there's a complex relationship with, because Mary is so fierce and powerful and amazing in the start of the Gospel of Matthew. And then Mary and the family show up later on, and Jesus is kind of like, I don't need my family, or they're not my true family. My true family are people who follow me. There's this is kind of like family schism kind of, which I can explain another time. But just super, there's obviously some tension there about Jesus' relationship. I mean, this is a probably a new concept to some of you, but some people have complex relationships with their mothers. Like, you've probably never heard of that before, but you want to write that down. It's um, this is new phenomenon that's being recorded. Um, And John is about to lose like the figure that has kept him, that he had his hopes in. He's now strung up on a cross and Mary is about to lose a son. And in the wake of this tragic loss, there's this gift where Jesus notices and witnesses their grief and knows that He is powerless to do anything about it and says, I see your loss. I see what is being taken from you. And I give you this, which is not the same thing. (laughs) It's not a replacement son that gets subbed in so there is no more pain. But the idea that John took Mary into his home from that point onwards makes you think that Mary may not have had other supports around and available. And Mary would have been getting older at that point and women were incredibly vulnerable in ancient Palestine, first century Palestine. And this incredible thing of like, I can just imagine years down the track of John caring for Mary and neither of them, John didn't replace Jesus for either of them. But in the wake of this loss, this goodness And wholeness, like, kind of sprung forth. And I think when we talk about hope, it's just such a lovely way. There's kind of two elements here. One, that our loss would be witnessed. When we talked a few weeks ago about the textures of loss, one of the main things that I I think we kind of wanted to get across was that your loss needs to be seen and acknowledged and witnessed. And I guess my hope is that if we believe in any kind of divine, one of the roles of the divine which Jesus represents in this story, as well as the human, is that having your loss witnessed and named and seen really matters. And then being able to hold hope that something might come in its wake, not as a replacement to say, see, it was all worked out well on the end, or isn't this better? John's even a, a better son than Jesus was. <laughs> he, Jesus didn't even have a home. So isn't that great? God's good. no. But that, in the wake of that horror and loss, that goodness might be possible and that the divine might be at work in bringing some kind of healing. And I think that's a really beautiful thing to hang on to. And as a person who's experienced loss and has also experienced the promise of never having loss or loss being okay and then facing the fact that it's really not. (laughs) um, That is the kind of hope that I can actually genuinely get on board with. Um, and again, at different stages of grief, hope is a violation, and that's okay too, Um, but there comes a time where actually, unless we're going to be cast into despair, that hope can actually be a real balm. Yeah, so, I'll read my little blessing for this one. When you feel the raw edge of loss, When you know the limits of your power, may you too know the witness of the divine and receive the good gift of possibility all in good time, which may bring something kind in the wake of destruction. Um, Those are our three stories for today leading us up to um, Resurrection Sunday. But before then, we have a Tenebrae service happening on Friday night. Uh, If you're not familiar with the Tenebrae service, it's a service of reading through the hours before Jesus' death um, and extinguishing candles as we go. Um, It's quite (laughs) sombre. It's quite intense and quite beautiful. Um, For some of you, it may be too much for you this year, and that's totally understandable. But um, Rod will post up a little link on Facebook. It'll be here on Friday night at about 7.30, I think, or maybe 8, depends on when it's getting dark. Um, But we'll be having that service there before we move into Resurrection Sunday. Um, But each week, you know, being Passover especially, we have communion together, which Jesus invited us in the Gospels to remember him whenever we gather. And so we try and do that. there are juice and crackers, and the way we do this is we gather around the middle, each take a cracker and each take a juice, and just hold it until everyone has some. Um, we have a firm policy here of uh, participate if you want. <laughs> um, if you don't want to, that's totally okay. If you just want to pretend, that's okay too. If you're just a little bit thirsty or need a cracker, that's all right. Um, but we will eat and drink together when everyone has, everyone who wants some has one. Um, yeah. So, yeah, if you'd like to move towards the communion table and take one if you'd like, um, then we will pray at the end. Death rates of that age. Oh, that's shame, yeah. chances. Yeah. Um, it's kind of funny we're doing a series on t- tears and laughter because I find crying really hard. Like, I heard Jim Carrey describing crying once, and he says, I can't cry without wanting to look in the mirror and see what it looks like. Um, but this week, like, like, I found myself, like, sob, sob crying, like that kind of crying. Um, and it came in a conversation with my dad who accidentally just kind of witnessed something, a grief that I couldn't name. Um, and it just kind of came out of me. Like, I didn't know that it was there. Um, my dad's back in New Zealand and like a, a wonderful and kind man and was just very generous this week. But, like, there was something about having that loss and grief witnessed that kind of, like, really ambushed me in a really beautiful and good way. Um, and if we're to believe in any kind of God, <laughs> the first thing I want to believe about God is that God holds every, holds and witnesses every loss. We're getting to Resurrection Sunday, next Sunday, and sometimes I believe in resurrection, and sometimes I don't. Um, and sometimes when I do believe in it, I believe in it because our church tradition, which has held me, believes in it in various forms. Sometimes I believe in it because I think it's a really beautiful idea. But most of the time when I believe in resurrection, I believe in it because of the harrowing stories of people who have not had lives and have had them crushed by others. And I just think someone, someone has to hold that and give a chance for these people to receive justice because I don't want to live in a universe which doesn't have that capacity for people who have had their lives taken in various forms to not ever have life again. I can't live with that kind of injustice. So it might be a fantasy of resurrection, but it's one that I'm, I'm really on board with. Um, this meal here represents lots of things, but it represents in part a man who is crucified by the state. And I think of people who are still in detention in this country, I think of people in Ukraine. I think of all of these things and just think um, as we eat and drink together to hold those broken stories and hope for resurrection that somehow there is enough divinity in this universe that they their stories will not go unnoticed, um, that action will be taken and that justice either now or later will be done. So let us eat and drink together. Thank you. Um, thank you, community, for being a really kind space today. Um, I felt really f- fragile today after this week. It's funny, writing here, just really grateful that this is a community where I don't have to hide very much of myself. And it's a community of just immense kindness and gentleness. And um, I hope that's your experience of it too. But I just wanted to say, like, th- thank you for being the kind of community that can just. Yeah, just hold fragility with gentleness. You are a really lovely bunch. Yeah, and look, we're an odd bunch of biscuits, aren't we? But we get there.